It's great to be here again. Romans chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 14 through 16. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Please bow with me in prayer. Oh, dear God, we ask that you would help us this morning. Lord, save souls. Convict your people. Encourage and equip your people. Dear Lord, please help me as I fall so short of what I'm about to preach. We need you to give us love for the lost, to give us confidence in your gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In the 1800s, there was an infamous criminal by the name of Charles Peace. He was a murderer. He he murdered a cop and got away. He then was infatuated with his neighbor's wife, so he murdered him as well. Committed many other crimes. Eventually this man was caught and he was sentenced to death. And we are told that he was escorted on the death walk by the prison chaplain who was reading aloud from the consolations of religion about the fires of hell. And as this happened, peace burst out and said, Sir, if I believe what you and the church of God say that you believe, even if England were covered with broken glass from coast to coast, I would walk over it, if need be, on hands and knees and think it worthwhile living just to save one soul from an eternal hell like that. That story reflects the sad state of evangelism that has been present for many generations and in many Christian circles. A a pagan, murderous man pointing out that if Christians truly believed what they said they believed, there would be an evangelistic zeal that is currently not present. Dear God, if a pagan, murderous man can see this, why can't we? How sad is it today where it's pretty much safe to say that most Christians never share their faith with anyone. But that we hide it. We go about our day, we go throughout our work, and we never share the gospel with anyone. 
And if you have a man who, who is passionate about the gospel, we say, oh, he must be a special man. No, he is a normal Christian man. And we, ha- we often have two extremes today. We have churches where everything is about missions and evangelism, and there's little care for sound doctrine and other functions of the church. And in many cases, these churches have a warped view of evangelism. They think that the gospel is going out and doing nice things for people. That's good to do, but that's not the gospel. Or many of those churches even share a false gospel. But then we have the opposite extreme. That I would say that many reformed churches fall into. And and, and that is the churches that are very concerned about sound doctrine. These believers are precise with their theology. They, They take great care to preserve and defend the biblical gospel. The problem is they never go out and share it with anyone else. But when we look at this text before us today, we see something quite different. A concern for souls followed by the appropriate response. Verse 14, Paul says, I am a debtor. Paul says he owes a debt. He is saying that he has an obligation, and he is saying this within the context of the gospel. And there are several reasons why Paul says this. Number one, as an apostle, Paul was called to preach the gospel. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul was called to do that. And some are called to preach. And they must do so. But but not everyone has this obligation to, to preach the gospel in a formal setting. But there's another reason why Paul feels obligated. And that is obedience to the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18 and 19. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Dear friends, we ought to feel obligated to obey the Great Commission by making disciples in whatever context we can. Christ's desire is that we would make disciples of all people, baptize them, and teach them to obey all that he commands. This commission from Christ is an obligation laid upon each and every believer. Not everyone is called to be a full-time missionary, but everyone is called to be a disciple maker. And number three, Paul was burdened because of sins around him. And he wanted people to come to Christ so that they would stop sinning against God. Acts 17. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Idolatry troubled him. We see this in other places throughout Scripture as well, don't we? David says in Psalm 119, 136, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Can we relate to that? 
Spurgeon said, carnal men are, are afraid of brute force and weep over losses and crosses, but spiritual men feel a holy fear of the Lord himself and most of all lament when they see dishonor cast upon his holy name. Isaiah 6. When Isaiah receives this revelation of the, the holiness of God, he, he, he pronounces a curse upon himself. He says, woe is me, for I am undone, not just because of his own sins, but what does he say? I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. Dear friends, we ought to be burdened and concerned about God being sinned against. Do you understand that? As a Christian, do you weep and mourn because God is being dishonored and disobeyed in this country and around the world? Does it disturb you that our country is becoming a showcase for every type of sin imaginable? Are you concerned about the fact that we murder babies in the millions? Are you concerned that fornication and homosexuality is paraded in our streets as though it is a good thing? Are you troubled by the fact that you really can't turn on a television without hearing God's name blasphemed? Does that disturb you? Do you feel burdened to share the gospel with others? So that they are saved and would cease to dishonor and disobey God. That should be a very real concern of yours. It was concern of David's. It was concern of Paul's. And number four, Paul was a debtor. He felt an obligation because he was saved from the wrath of God. And he was burdened for souls that are still under God's wrath. In other words, he loved souls. He, he saw an unbeliever as a precious soul that, that, that would spend eternity in either heaven or hell, and he wanted them to be saved because he loved them. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 9. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul is saying, I, I wish that I could take their hell for them if it were somehow possible. That, dear friends, is love. When you are so concerned about the souls of others that you said, I, I wish that I could just take their hell for them. I, I don't want them to suffer in that way. The great majority of those around us are on their way to eternity and the lake of fire. Does that reality move you? When was the last time you wept over your loved ones, over your children, over your parents, your neighbors, and your coworkers who, who do not yet know Christ? 
When was the last time you wept for strangers and other nations where Christ is not known and people are going to hell in droves? Yes, we believe in a sovereign God that saves who he wills. But the chapter in the Bible that talks most about election, Romans 9, is the very chapter that I just quoted where Paul is saying, I wish that I could take them their hell for them. The sovereignty of God does not kill evangelism. It should motivate evangelism. Dear friends, if we have any love for souls... It ought to burden us like Paul so that we too say that we are under obligation to share the gospel. We are debtors to share the gospel. Conrad and Bayway once said, Beware of a merely intellectual Christianity with no love for souls. And in many ways, our love for souls is a test of what we truly believe. Do we actually believe that people must spend eternity in hell if they die without Christ? If we truly believe that and have been spared from that hell ourselves, it must move us to action. As one person put it, no wonder why unbelievers don't believe in hell when believers live as though hell does not exist. Jeremy Walker, in his book, The Brokenhearted Evangelist, puts it this way. It is very easy to be up in arms, for example, about curtain assaults on what can so calmly be described as the doctrine of hell. Of course there is a hell. We, we protest, offended, and disturbed that someone could deny what is so plainly written in the word of God. Dear friends, I am in a reformed church right now. If I were to say that hell does not exist, you would defend the doctrine of hell with all your might, would you not? But listen to what Walker says. Is there a hell? What difference has it made? What have you done differently because there is a hell? Is its reality driving our thoughts, words, and deeds? Many of us have entered the kingdom and have come perilously close to the flames of the pit. We have felt its fire, and yet we have perhaps forgotten that from which we have been delivered. The urgency with which we fled to Christ ourselves has perhaps been replaced with a casual awareness of spiritual reality that never energizes us to do anything for those who are themselves in danger of eternal punishment. Walker goes on to say, doesn't the clear biblical teaching of hell demand that every one of us be a witness to the ungodly? Consider what the scriptures have to say about hell. If hell is a place where the fire is not quenched and the worm always gnaws, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, of extreme and outer darkness, of fire and torment and condemnation, if hell is the least part of what it is presented to be in God's holy word, then how in the name and for the sake of our own humanity, let alone our Christian duty, could we ever remain silent about the truth that saves from hell? God help us. You only need to be a human to be concerned about people going to hell. 
But, but we're much far beyond that as, as, as Christians. We, we have Christian commands. We've been saved from that hell. We have much more motivation than that. Walker goes on to give an, an illustration. He says, imagine you are outside of a concentration camp in Germany where people are starving to death. They open up the gates and the prisoners come out and they are nothing but skin and bone. They are starving. And you are standing there with a basket full of bread, which to them is life-saving, and you, you, you offer none of it to them. How hateful would people consider you to be if you did that? You know that they are dying, and it's a piece of bread, and you don't give it to them. Dear friends, we live in a world where people are starving to death for truth. That the masses are dead in their sins and on their way to eternity in hell. And you and I know exactly what they need. How unloving do we have to be to withhold it from them? How unloving do we have to be? And dear friends, this may sound harsh, but believe me when I say that I am preaching to myself first and foremost here. It is in this sense that we, as Paul was, are debtors to others. So who exactly was Paul a debtor to? He says both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. The Greeks thought of everyone who was not a Greek as a barbarian. So Paul is essentially saying he is a debtor to all people, to all ethnic groups, to all social classes. The gospel is for the intellectual, the philosopher, the the physician. The gospel is for the most simple-minded person. The gospel is for everyone without exception because everyone is in equal need of it. Paul loves all souls and desires for them to be saved. So considers himself a debtor to them. Conrad and Bayway says, where there is a true love for souls, it does not remain at an emotional level. Our love must lead to action, otherwise it is not love. If we believe our Bibles and what it says about death and hell and the wrath of God, we must be moved to do something. The question is, what should we do? Dear friends, we know exactly what to do, don't we? Verse 15. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Because he is a debtor, Paul is eager to preach the gospel in Rome. We don't see a cold-hearted obligation. I have to drag myself out here to do this. But, but we see an eagerness. Because he loves people. 
Again, Paul wants to fulfill his mission as an apostle, but it goes beyond that. Paul knows that, that many are on their way to hell, and he feels an obligation to help them, so he is eager to preach the gospel to them. In other words, Paul is revealing to us that the gospel is the solution for the condition of fallen mankind. If we are burdened for souls and we truly want to see souls saved, then we must see the gospel as the only solution for lost souls. Paul goes on, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. What a relevant statement to our situation today. Paul is eager to preach the gospel and then says, by the way, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why would he say that? Well, in Paul's day, Rome was a terrible place for Christians. Remember that Paul was arrested as a criminal. Christianity was a crime in Rome. And Paul was beaten and stoned and imprisoned because of his preaching of the gospel. He, of all people, had a reason to be ashamed of the gospel, but he was eager to preach it. He's not ashamed, but eager. And Paul is a great example of what our mindset should be, eager to share the life-saving gospel at all costs. Listen to what Paul says in, in Acts 21. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And when he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am not ready to, not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. They're saying, Paul, please don't go. You're, you're going to be bound. And he says, what are you talking about? I'm ready to die if I need to. Nothing is going to stop me from sharing the life-saving gospel. This is so relevant to us today. Because today, the moment that you say the gospel is the solution to the world's problems, you know you're going to be mocked. People will say, what an outdated idea. We hear things like, that the modern man needs modern solutions. There's nothing that an old book can do for us today. Or we hear the gospel is helpful as long as we change some things and make it more relevant to our current situation. Or, or the gospel meant something different to early Christians, and, and today we have to reinterpret it through the lens of our own context. Dear friends, do not be ashamed of the gospel. But what does it look like? What does it mean to be ashamed of the gospel? John Gill gives us a few points. Some of the things we, we do when we are ashamed of the gospel, we, we refuse to share the gospel when we have the opportunity to do so. Maybe we think people are going to laugh at us. Maybe people are going to think we're crazy. 
Or maybe we leave out certain elements of the gospel, but perhaps to make it less offensive, perhaps we should not mention sin. Because people will think that we're crazy if we say that, that, that you're a sinner. So, so let's just leave that element out. Or, or we add things to the gospel because we don't think it's sufficient. We are ashamed of how simple it is. Or we replace the true gospel with a false gospel, one that we think would, would, would work better in our current situation. Paul did none of those things. And why was Paul not ashamed of the gospel? And why should you and I not be ashamed of the gospel? Verse 16. For it is the power of God to salvation. Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because it is a powerful gospel. It is the message that God uses to save sinners. It is the message that God has chosen to be instrumental in the salvation of souls. And there is no other message where this is the case. We can put up strobe lights and play emotional music and have people come forward to make decisions for Christ. And we can try to be as relevant and accommodating as a person could possibly be in our culture, but none of those things have power to save. It is only the gospel. If we are truly burdened to see souls saved, then we must share the only message that God uses to save sinners. It's like a person is dying from heart failure. And you, and you have a heart there, and instead of transplanting the heart, you give them a new kidney or something. That's what this is like when we give somebody something other than the gospel. It is not what they need. They need the gospel. But today there's a lot of confusion about the gospel, isn't there? And there are many false ideas and even professing Christians hold to them that are actually at war with the gospel. Satan knows that the gospel is the power of God to salvation, so if there is any truth he wants to distort, it is the gospel. And Satan knows that he cannot get rid of the gospel, so he attempts to pervert it because he knows that a false gospel is no gospel at all. There is no power to save in it. So let us look for a moment at what is not the gospel and effectively at war with the gospel. Number one, repeat this prayer to accept Jesus into your heart. Difference, that is not the gospel. Nowhere in Scripture are sinners told to come to Christ by repeating a prayer like a magic formula, asking Christ into their hearts. And I, and I know so many, of, so many of us have been fooled by this, and so many of us have experienced this ourselves, but that is not the gospel. The gospel calls sinners to repent and to believe. In fact, this doctrine, often called decisional regeneration, is notorious for producing false converts. People who live like demons but believe they are saved because they came forward and made a decision for Christ. I was one of them. 
My entire childhood, I thought I was a Christian. I could live in, in sin and think that I was a Christian. Why? Because I accepted Christ into my heart. What is the evidence that you accepted Christ into your heart? The fact that I repeated the prayer. I'm a Christian. It doesn't matter how I live. I've done that. That is not the gospel. Number two, God has a wonderful plan for your life. And we go to sinners who are living in their sins and tell them that they are good people. They just need to add Christ to their life, like the cherry on top of a Sunday. That is not what Paul did. That is not the gospel. Or if you believe in Jesus and, and give to the church, you will become healthy and wealthy. We have the wretched prosperity gospel. Where the focus is on people being, being, uh, being brought into the church and tithing. And then God will bless your life. There's no mention of sin. There's no repentance of sin. Yes, there's some faith in Christ, but only so that, that he will give you things. And number four, inviting people to church. There is absolutely nothing wrong with inviting people to church. Inviting people to church is a good thing. We should all do it. But, but some people think that it's synonymous with evangelism. That is not evangelism. Evangelism is when we give people the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, we invite them to church, and Lord willing, they hear the gospel there as well. But that is not the gospel. And I say this because you have Christians who believe that they go out and share the gospel, but really all they do is invite people to church. And again, that's not a bad thing. But don't mistake that for the gospel. Number five, apologetics or defending the faith. Now, I love apologetics just as much as anyone. But defending the faith does not save. Although Christianity is logical, nobody is reasoned into the faith. It takes an act of God using the message of the gospel to save souls, not just merely facts. Oh, it, it is absolutely wonderful. You should be able to give a reason for why you believe. Apologetics has its place in the Christian life for sure, but, but understand that it is not the power of God to salvation. In fact, if you go out and, and engage people on the streets and, and you start taking the apologetic approach, you're going to answer objection after objection after objection after objection, and it will never end. Because no matter how many objections you answer, they don't just stop and say, you know what? You explained that to me perfectly. I, need to, I just need to submit now. No, they don't do that. After you have explained every objection, they go away. It is not the power of God to salvation. And number six, social justice and racial reconciliation. Dare I say it? Social justice and racial reconciliation are not the gospel. Of all the things that I said that were not the gospel, this is probably the one that is the most important for us to be aware of today because it is deceiving even Reformed evangelicals. 
Dear friends, the social justice movement blatantly attacks the gospel by either changing it or denying its need. And unlike with other issues, many reformed evangelicals are either in denial of this or they are afraid to address it. And I would argue that, that very little times in church history have, have we seen evangelicals refusing to deal with an issue that is, uh, that is attacking the gospel blatantly. Why do I say this? Well, let's, let us look at the words of some of those who are called the social justice or anti-racist experts of our day. A couple of weeks ago, I was watching a short video by Kendi, a man considered to be an expert on these things, a man who is paid to teach others these things. And this man is sitting in a church, and he was asked the question of the connection between the, the, the faith community and what, what, what is the role of the faith community in being anti-racist? And this is what he said. Jesus was a revolutionary. And the job of the Christian is to liberate society from the powers on earth that are oppressing humanity. That's the job of the Christian. To liberate people from oppressors on earth. And, and that's what he calls liberation theology. And, and Kendi compares this to what he calls savior theology. He says in savior theology, theology, the job of the Christian is to go out and save these individuals who are behaviorally deficient. In other words, we are to bring them into the church, these individuals who are doing all of those evil, sinful things, and save them. And then, once we save them, we've done our jobs. To me, anti-racists fundamentally reject Savior theology. That goes right in line with the racist ideas and racist theology in which they say black people, other racial groups, the reason why they are struggling on earth is because of what they are behaviorally doing wrong. And it is my job as the pastor to say to save these wayward black people or wayward poor people or wayward queer people. That type of theology beats, breeds bigotry. And so to me, the type of theology of liberation theology breeds a common humanity against the structures of power that oppress us all. Did you hear that? Did you hear what he was saying? These words were spoken in a church with a great commission etched into the walls behind them. And what he said is that Savior theology, which is biblical theology, or the biblical gospel, is a racist. Not only does that man believe that people need something other than the gospel, but he looks at the wonderful, beautiful, glorious, powerful gospel of Jesus Christ and said, that's racist and it promotes bigotry. And then Christians invite him to speak at their church and bring their books into their churches. And when other Christians in the church speak out against that, they're asked to leave because they're not being sensitive. What on earth is happening? Another popular teaching in the anti-racism or social justice world is that all disparities between whites and blacks are due to racism. And if you deny that, you are racist. This is important for us to understand. This means that if I go to a predominantly black neighborhood 
like where I grew up, in the hood. And I see poverty and distress. People who are addicted to drugs and alcohol. People living on the streets. People given to prostitution. When we look at that situation, it is racist to say that their problem is that they are living in sin and they need Christ. That's racist. What a blatant attack on the gospel. I love how Vody Bakum points out what this movement has done to the gospel. He points out that this movement classifies society as those who need salvation and those who don't. The, the oppressors are the ones who need salvation because they're racist. And by the way, you, you can never not be racist. So you have to spend the rest of your life trying to do the good works of anti-racism to somehow earn your salvation. But for the oppressed people, the only thing they need is to be liberated from earthly oppressors. In both cases, Christ is no longer Savior. The gospel is no longer sufficient. The gospel is not the power of God to salvation. Christ is not sufficient to save oppressors from their racism. And for those who are in the oppressed category, they don't need to be saved from God's wrath. Their only problem is that they are oppressed by people and systems. Notice that Kindy equated the black group to the, the queer group. As those are those as those as though those things are the same category. You don't go to the black group and say that your problem is that you're living in sin. Neither do you go to the queer group and say that your problem is that you're living in sin. That means if I go to a gay pride parade and share the gospel, I'm a racist. This is nonsense. But again, the books of these people are being brought into churches. I personally had someone message me about one of these books because they were reading it with pastors and elders and the president of a Christian college and they thought it had wonderful ideas about solving racial problems. This is a problem. This is a blatant attack on the gospel. And we're afraid to say it. God help us. Racial reconciliation and social justice are not the gospel. They are not the power of God unto salvation. They do not offer salvation. They offer the opposite. The gospel of Jesus Christ says that, that if you're living in, in sin and, and you're addicted to things that you should not be addicted to and, and you're living in poverty and all these other things, you, you can do something about that. You can confess your sins. You can repent of your sins and turn to Christ. He will save you and deliver you from that bondage. The gospel of social justice says there ain't a thing you can do about that until we somehow flip the script and get rid of the, the powers that be. One of those offers hope. The other one does not. Dear friends, do not adopt these teachings, which are not the gospel, because you are ashamed of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, 
The biblical gospel is offensive. Our world hates absolute truth, and then Christians come along and say, we have absolute truth. Because we do. Yes, the gospel is offensive, but it has power to save. But when we start changing the gospel, it is no longer the gospel. It has no power to save. It is not loving for you to not tell sinners that they're going to hell. That's not loving. That's the most hateful thing you can do. If you love someone, you give them exactly what they need. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. In closing, I want to draw your attention to the Apostle Paul in Athens as an example to us all. Acts 17, starting in verse 16, Paul is waiting for others in Athens, and and when he sees that the city is given over to idols, it disturbs him, and he moves into action. He's disturbed by the sins around him. So he moves into action. Verse 17, Therefore he reasoned in a synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Verse 18, Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Paul is sharing the gospel everywhere in this pagan city. Filled with idols. Totally pagan. And verse 18 says he's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Foolishness to Greeks. And at this point, Paul has already been insulted for what he's saying. They said to him, what does this babbler have to say? That's an insult. The Greek word actually means seed picker. John Gill said this word was used to speak of a set of idle people that used to go, that used to, go to markets and fairs and pick up seeds that were shook out of sacks upon which they lived. And so the word came to be used for an idle, good-for-nothing fellow and for one that picked up tales and fables and carried them about for a livelihood. So in other words, they're saying he doesn't have a deep Logical. He doesn't have deep, logical, digested thoughts. He's simply picking up little pieces of information here and there like seeds and spitting them back out. In other words, they're, they're insulting what he's saying. They mocked him because of the gospel. But because he's preaching faithfully Jesus and the resurrection, this is something new to them, so they, so they want to hear it. So, so they invite him to the Arbogast so that he can... Talk more about these things. But does this sway Paul away from the truth? Does he water it down and compromise because the insults are already coming? Does he change his gospel because he's in a pagan place? Absolutely not. As you read Paul's address, he gives them, in a sense, the meta narrative of Scripture. 
which is foolishness to them. He, he tells them that God is the creator and sustainer of all things. He goes to creation. You and I know the temptation of, of saying that the world was created in six days. God created things. You mean you don't believe in evolution? Then, then you're a fool, right? I can't believe you if you don't believe in evolution. So we say, well, well maybe there was this kind of God-ordained evolution. Because we're ashamed. Well, if scientists say it, then we can't disagree with that if we want to be taken seriously. For every scientist that says one thing, you can find another one who contradicts. But who has more authority, a scientist or the word of God? So he starts with creation. And then he tells them that they are worshiping false gods. They are sinners. They are guilty of idolatry. No, I'm not going to play nice and friendly with your idols. The, the true God is not made with human hands. What you are doing here is wrong. That was their livelihood. They had all of their idols that they worshipped. It was a huge part of their life. And Paul says, you are wrong. You are in sin. Paul was not very seeker friendly. This is why... We, Wherever Paul went, there was either revival or he was kicked out. One of the two. There was no middle ground. Because, he is, they, because they are guilty of idolatry, he tells them that God would judge them in righteousness. And he calls them to repent. He tells them that they are commanded, therefore, to repent. You can't have a gospel without repentance. And he tells them that Jesus was raised from the dead. Foolishness to Greeks. But he does not leave it out because he knows that they will mock it. He includes it because it is true. His desire is not to be accepted by the Athens. The Athenian philosophers. He doesn't care about that. His desire is that souls would be saved. And he knows that if, if souls are going to be saved, he must preach the true living gospel. So everything that Paul said to them was a contradiction of what they thought to be true, but there is power in the gospel. So what happened? Verse 32. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined and believed. That's what happens when we are faithful to the gospel. Yes, we get mocked, but some believe. Dear friends, when we share the gospel as Paul in Athens, some will mock, but some will be saved. Because no matter how foolish we sound to the world, there is power in the gospel. Now, you and I know what we need to do, don't we? But here's what happens. Perhaps you're a little bit more motivated to go out and share the gospel right now or share the gospel in whatever context you can. But, but then comes the busyness of your week. And, and you no longer have the, the motivation. You, you're no longer worked up to do it. You, you no longer feel like it. Listen to what Jeremy Walker says. Are you willing 
This is not a matter of whether you feel like it. Desire is not just a matter of whether you have some instinctive inclination or if your emotions happen to be raised to the right pitch. We need a binding resolution of conscience compelling each of us. Each of us must have the conviction that we stand before God as saved sinners who, on the basis of our own pardon, lie under an undeniable obligation to exercise the glorious privilege of presenting Christ to a transgressing fallen generation. And I leave you with these words from Spurgeon. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. God forbid a person go to hell who was never warned by you and you spent every day of your life at work with him and they never even knew. God forbid. People are dying and going to hell every single day. And we have a powerful gospel that saves. Let us proclaim it to others. Let us pray. Oh, dear God, we thank you for your glorious gospel. Help us to be confident in it. Help us to never be ashamed of it, to never be tempted to, to change it or leave parts out or to add things to it. Help us not to be deceived by those things that, that are called gospel but are really not. Oh, God, break our hearts for the lost. That we would desire for them to turn to you for salvation. And that we would not hold the only remedy available. That we would not withhold it from them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.